Let us pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come to your holy word and to pause from our busy schedules to listen to what you have to say. So, Father, as we look into your words, Father, we pray that you will grant us insight and wisdom into your holy word, that we may see wonderful treasures that will bring us joy and bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we pause to understand, to read, to ponder afresh the words of yours in the book of Ezra, Father, we pray that you will speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 29th, 567 years ago, the city of Constantinople fell to the Muslims. For centuries, the city of Constantinople, or modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, was the heart of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Eastern Church itself. The city over the years was where it has produced some of the most powerful saints, like uh, that made a difference in God's kingdom, saints like Ignatius, St. Helena, Maximus the uh, Confessor. And in its heyday, no one ever thought that the city of Constantinople would fall. It had a triple-layered wall around the city, meaning that the city was impenetrable. And three sides of the city were surrounded by the sea. This makes it very difficult for enemies to lay siege around the city. And the sea allows to, uh, the people to escape and to bring in food, even though they may face a siege from the enemies. But then there was a man called Muhammad, who later became the leader of a very powerful religious sect called the Muslims. Muhammad, before he died, had a dream. He had a dream that one day the city of Constantinople would fall to one of his followers. And, he, and whoever brings the city down would be greatly honoured. So after Muhammad's death, many Muslims tried to fulfil the dream of their leader. But no one could do it. No one could cause the city of Constantinople to fall except a man called Mehmet. Mehmet was the Sultan of the Ottomans. He was an Islamic leader and he was determined to bring down the city of Constantinople. He erected fortresses around the city. He brought ships to attack it and armies to attack it from the land and ships to attack it from the sea. After months of trying to break down the city walls and get into the city, Mehmet failed miserably. Finally, he called for a council and he persuaded his followers to make one final assault on the city. If it failed, the Muslims will just retreat and leave the city alone. So on the day of the final attack on the city of Constantinople, he got his biggest guns, pointed to the city walls and started firing insistently against the city. After days and weeks of firing against the city, they erected their flags, the Muslim flags, on the city walls as a way of trying to scare the people within the city. Finally, after insisting, insistent bombing against the city, the city finally fell. The Muslims turned the beautiful Hagar Sophia, which is one of the most beautiful churches in the world, into a mosque.
they slaughtered the Christians and turned the Eastern Church, the hub of the Eastern Church, into a Muslim city. Why did the city fall? There are many theories, but some say it's because the Christians inside the city saw the flags of the Muslims. When they saw the flags of the Muslim all erected around the city walls, they started to panic. Their eyes started to betray them. When they hear the bombing of the Muslims, which got louder than the worship music coming out of Hagia Sophia, they started to panic. The city fell, as many scholars would put it, because the music of God was replaced with the terror of the bombing. Their ears failed them and their eyes failed them. Instead of looking to God, they began to look to the Muslim flags. Our eyes and our ears often start often are the most the biggest culprit that fail us and our eyes and our ears do fail us today especially when our circumstances become overwhelming and our eyes become channeled not towards god but begin to be channeled against uh, towards the circumstances of our lives instead of hearing from god's word we begin to hear from the discouraging words around us that sometimes we even speak to ourselves so what do we do during these times throughout the old testament god has raised leaders with a one awesome responsibility, one very important responsibility. God has often raised godly kings with one responsibility, and their responsibility is to bring out the voice of God in such a way that the entire city, the entire nation of Israel, hear the voice of God and see God at work. Because they know that our eyes and our ears will often fail us. So we need reminders. In fact, in God's eyes, the best kings are not the kings that bring the greatest economic prosperity to Israel. If it were be, it would have to be King Omri. King Omri was the most successful king in terms of economic power. During his reign, his, the nation of Israel was even larger than during Solomon's time. And he was so powerful that many of the other nations called the Israelites the Omrites for many years because of King Omri. But in God's eyes, God could care less about which king has the most economic and political power. We know this because Second Chronicles, which records the history of the kings of Israel, does not even mention Omri. But the writer of Second Chronicles spends a lot of time on two kings, on two of the kings after David and Solomon, Hezekiah and Josiah. They're the kings that uh, they're not politically powerful because by the time when the Hezekiah and the Josiah became king, politically Judah was in its decline. They were in the throes of being attacked and, 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 uh, and swallowed up by the foreign powers around them. Uh, in fact, they were at the tail end of the nation of Judah. Both kings yet were honored by God in very special ways. Why? Because they made God great. They allowed the people of Israel to see the greatness of God, to experience and hear 
the greatness of God. And this is why the writer of Chronicles devotes about 100 verses more to the reign of King Hezekiah when he tries to make the worship of God central. He renovated the temple, reorganized the priests and Levites and celebrated the Passover. Hezekiah made God big, important in the city of Judah. He made the worship of God ominous, powerful, surrounding the entire city with the Levites uh, singing and praising God and celebrating the Passover. But it's not just King Hezekiah and King Josiah. Even though they have passed away by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews during uh, Ezra chapters 1 to 6 were not that dissimilar to King Hezekiah. Just as King Hezekiah made the temple a priority, the worship of God a priority, the Jews in Ezra 1 to 6 also made the temple a priority. The first thing that they did when they came back from exile was to rebuild the temple of God. Not about politics, not about economics, but the very first thing that they were concerned about, just like Hezekiah, was to build the temple of God. And just as Hezekiah wanted to make the worship of God renowned and fill the entire city, here the Jews in Ezra chapter 6 wants to want to make the worship of God renowned in the rebuilt Jerusalem as they celebrate the Passover here in the book of Ezra 6. Why? Because they want to make God great. And I think we need to do that in our own lives too. Because often our circumstances will so overwhelm us. And the first thing that will always betray us are our eyes and our ears. So we need to make a deliberate attempt, just like the Jews in Ezra chapter 6, to make God great in our lives. And how do we do that? Two ways of this passage, as we looked in Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 to 22. Two ways, very simply. Number one, we need to celebrate the fact that God saves. We need to celebrate, celebrate the fact that God saves. There is one thing that's very common in the lives uh, between King Hezekiah, King Josiah, and the Jews here in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. Not only have they done renovating the temple, but they celebrated the Passover. Let's read verse 19 of Ezra chapter 6. On the 14th day of the first month, the exile celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves, and all were ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for all their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. They celebrated the Passover. One of the ways in which they wanted to make God great in the city was they celebrated the Passover. The Passover was first celebrated in Exodus chapter 12, when God said to these people of Israel, that he will make a distinction between the sons of Israel and the sons of Egypt. So, one night, on the night of the Passover, blood was splashed on the door frames of the Israelites, and God bypassed the sons of Israel, while on the other hand, he did not bypass the sons of Egypt. He slaughtered them in the night. 
For the Jews in Ezra chapter 1 to 6, God's salvation is not just a matter of the past. God not only did that during the time of the Exodus, but they believe that God still saves them. That God still treats his children differently than the children of the world. What are they doing here? They are saying that salvation needs to be spoken not only in the past tense. Yes, God has saved us in the past. But salvation needs to be spoken in the present tense too. We need to know that there was a time that Jesus saved us in the past. But we also need to speak about God's saving act today. How is God saving you? Saving you from trials? Saving you from the devil and his evil schemes? How is salvation? How is God saving us now? Here the Jews celebrated the Passover because they believed that God had just saved them out of the cruel hands of the Persians, out of the oppression of the Persians, by granting them favor to rebuild the temple. They believed that God's saving power was not just in the time of the Exodus, but it's also now. So we need to speak of salvation in three tenses, in the past, in the present, and in the future. Many a times as a pastor, I've often encouraged congregation members to share testimonies. Many people only share about salvation in the past, how God saved them 30 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But very few people talk about how is God helping you, saving you? How are you seeing Jesus at work right now? We need to speak about salvation in three sentences. Not just the past, not just the present, but also the future. How this world will one day pass away and how we need to build our treasures in heaven because Jesus will save us from death even right now, even um, uh, for, all, for all eternity. How is God saving us now? Andrew Brunson was a Christian pastor who served as a missionary for over 20 years in Turkey. He had acquired but a very deep ministry there until the year 2016. There was a military coup in uh, Turkey and the government arrested a number of people who they thought were terrorists or at least people trying to oppress, oppose the government. Branson was labelled by the Turkish government as a spy. He was unfortunately labelled as a spy. So he spent two years in prison, often enduring long and difficult trying times in prison. During the long days in prison, Andrew Branson was extremely discouraged when he was unfairly locked up by the Turkish government. At times he felt that God had left him, that God no longer saves, that salvation is not just... It was just a matter of the past and it didn't matter to him anymore. He remember one time when he lost, felt that he was abandoned by God, that God was silent. So he remained silent during those days. And when he was finally brought to trial, things were even worse. They gave him such a hard time. And during these times of testing and trials, he was broken. One day he was laying himself, lying down by himself in his solitary cell. 
and there was a tremendous sense of fear and grief that gripped him. And he found himself crying uncontrollably. It was then he lifted his eyes up to God and started crying out to God, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why are you so far away? And it was during those times when he was started crying out to God, a sense of worship came into him that he started singing out to God, I loved you, Jesus. I loved you, Jesus. I loved you, Jesus. It was during those times he realized that God is not just the God of the past, but God is also the God of the present. That God will save him and God is with him at his moment. And God is also the God of the future. Do we speak of God as the God who saves us in the past only? Or do we celebrate God and His saving power even in the present and the future? Secondly, how do we make God great in our lives? Not only celebrate the, God, the fact that God saves in all three tenses, Secondly, God is always active in advancing His kingdom. The writer of Ezra and Nehemiah never thought of God just as a God of the past, but God is constantly at work with His people. Notice we read in verse 21, So the Israelites were returned from the exile, ate it. They ate the Passover. Together with those who had been separated from the unclean practices of the Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. We are told that the Jews not only celebrated the Passover, but they also invited others to join them in celebrating this Passover. They were perhaps Jewish proselytes, or they were even Gentiles, who had kept themselves clean from the, uh, the polluted ways of the Gentiles, of the unbelievers, who had a desire to seek the Lord. They invited them to eat with them. They knew that God's kingdom was just was not just restricted to them, but was always advancing, always growing. Twenty-three years the Jews had returned to in since Ezra chapter two, and they still believe that God is still at work. That God's work of extending and advancing His kingdom has not ended. So in verse twenty-two we read, "For seven days they celebrated with joy." The festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Notice that the Jews were celebrating because God was still working amongst them, changing the attitude of the king so that they could enjoy. They were celebrating because God was with them, that God could change the attitude of the Persian kings. And God is at work extending his kingdom and, and advancing his kingdom even amongst foreign territory. But what's interesting is that the writer calls the Persians the king of Assyria. By the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the kingdom of Assyria has already long gone. So this has perplexed many scholars and many people think that this is a scribal era, that it should be the king of Persia that God had changed rather than king of Assyria. Some people think it's a blatant mistake. But if you actually read Nehemiah chapter 9, 
you will notice that the, the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah often speak of the history of Israel as one big story. Never, the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah never breaks up the story into segments. Oh, this segment belongs to uh, the Jews here. This segment belongs to Israelites here. This segment belongs to the Northern King. But no, no, no. He always speaks about the history of Israel as one big story. What happened in the past with the king of Assyria, when the king of Assyria came into and conquered the northern territories, still is their story. It's one big story that has come to an end. And God had fought all the way to the end. What are they saying here? They're saying that they are part of God's story. That what happened in the past with Israel is their story. And I think this is very poignant for us as Christians. That what happened in the past in this Old Testament, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is not their story. It's not the story of just the Jews, not just the story of, this, of the early church, but it's our story. There is only one big story and we are part of it. The God who delivered the Israelites is the same God who will deliver us today. He will be the one who will deliver us in the future when Jesus comes again. He, will, he is the same God. This is our same story. What happens in the Bible is not them and us. We often make this divide between them and us. This applies to Moses because he is of such incredible faith, but doesn't apply to me because I'm not Moses. No, no, no. It's not the story just of Moses. It's the story of all of us. The same God that Moses had is the same God that we have today. So, what is our take-home message? Make God big in your lives. Because there will come circumstances that will cause our eyes to shift from God. There will be circumstances whereby the world's voices will be louder than the Word of God. So we need to deliberately make God great in our lives. How do we do that? Speak of God in all three tenses. That God is a God who not only saved the Israelites, the early church, but God still saves us. That God is our Savior. That in whatever circumstances you face, you can always depend on God to always come to our aid. That God listens to our prayers. He may not answer the way that we want, but He will answer. That He is alive and active. Speak of God in the future tense. That God is our hope. That even when we die, He will be there for us. Speak of God in all three tenses. Number two, believe that. It's one thing to just speak it, but believe that. Are you in difficult times? Be like Andrew Branson when he was in such difficult times. Believe that you can call upon God, that God is faithful. He will answer, that He will not forget us. So believe in God in all three tenses. Number three, take time to celebrate God. If you let the world's voices become the largest voice in your head, in your life,
news. That all you hear are the news stories that you read on Google and on YouTube. That will become your most prevailing voice in your own life. Take time to read God's Word. Take time to worship. Take time to celebrate. Be with Christians. That's what, that's what the, 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 the Jews did. They celebrated the Passover together. Take time to celebrate the death and resurrection together. If you go to the city of Cremona in Italy, you'll find something very interesting about this city of Cremona that's very different from other cities its sides. The people there are extremely quiet. You see, the city of Cremona is the home of uh, uh, the makers of musical instruments like the Stradivarius violins. That's where they make some of the most beautiful sounding violins in the entire world. And because they're conducting an ex experiment across the cities to capture every sound that would come out of the Stradivarius instruments for prosperity purposes, they, they try to keep the, the noise pollution of the city at a much lower level than most other cities. That means that the city is extremely quiet. It's because in the heart of the city, at the auditorium that is at the downtown of the city, they are conducting experiments whereby they are playing every single note across time that the Stradivarius violin could make. And they're digitally recording the different sounds of the violin and they're, they're storing it up in their computers for future references. So in order to do that, they have to keep the noise level around the city at a much lower level. So the police are often everywhere to make sure that the, 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 the traffic doesn't drive too close to where the downtown auditorium is. And, the, and when they start recording the sounds that would come out of the Stradivarius violin, what they would do is that during the, the recording time, the auditorium's ventilation will be turned off. Every light bulb in the concert hall would be unscrewed to eliminate the buzzing sound that would come out of the light, the light bulbs. The violinists would then start to play. And when they played a C major scale, the recording team would be there to capture the sound coming out of these violins. And I think we need to do that. We need to keep the noise pollution of our lives to a minimum. And let only one sound, one voice, one word, and the word of Jesus Christ through scripture to ring. We need to invest time and effort in that to let it ring. Let it ring so that when trials come, our ears will not betray us and our eyes will not fail. But we will hear the celebration that Jesus saves. Father, we come to your word. We thank you. We thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that has the power not only to save the people from of all, but has the power to save us and the future generations to come. 
we thank you, Lord God, that you still work your work, not only in the time of Moses when the first access happened, but you still delivered the people of the Jews, even in Ezra's time, hundreds of years later, and they still celebrate the Passover. Lord, we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate his death and his resurrection because it's not just a matter of the past, but Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us every day. And by his grace, he shows us that he's the savior of the world by giving us trials and tribulations. So in these circumstances, we will look to the cross, we will look to Jesus. So Father, we thank you for the reminders. We thank you that though these reminders can be painful, they can hurt us, but Father, we, we, they are there to channel us to look to Jesus and the cross. So Father, save us right now. Save us in the future. Future. When sickness and death overwhelmed us, you are the one that lead us to glory. So, Father, we come. We once again pour our hearts unto you as we bow in worship. Father, make your voice loud and the loudest in our lives. In Jesus' name.